You're listening to the Big Cast C-Suite Edition, your source for leadership insights and inspiration with John Jan Clays. This episode of C-Suite Interviews is made possible by the generous support of Kony, a leader in enterprise mobility and applications to drive digital transformation. Hello, everyone, and welcome to November's edition of C-Suite Interviews. I'm your host, John Janclays, and I'm glad to have you with us today. Hey, I've got a few things to cover uh, before we jump right into this month's episode. I've kind of got a shout-out, a reminder, and an idea for you. So, hey, let's go right to the shout-out to Diana Dykstra and the California and Nevada Credit Union League for putting on a tremendous conference. It was called REACH 2017. I was able to attend the sessions and listen to the speakers there. I walked away enlightened and inspired, and uh, you should uh, think about attending next year's session because it was absolutely fantastic. During that conference, I was able to share ideas about my book, Doing What Matters, and speak with some of you there who are listeners to the show, and you gave me some really great ideas about how to make the show better, so we'll incorporate those. Um, let's see, some reminders. If you haven't already downloaded the Big Cast app, you'll want to do that. You can go right to iTunes and download the app. That way, whenever John or Ann or Glenn or I have an episode ready for you, you'll be prompted. It'll be queued up for you, and it'll make it easy for you to track and follow what the show is doing. And by the way, if you've not listened to the last episode by Ann Legg, it was called Quantifiable Self and Zero UI, Why Credit Unions Should Care. Great episode. Uh, that Ann narrated, and it was uh, I really enjoyed it, and I think you will too. Hey, the other reminder I have for you is John's new book called Breaking Digital Gridlock is going to be out, and um, I think it's coming out in May, April time frame. And I've had a chance to take a look at the book, and it's got some great stuff in it. At the highest level, what I liked about John's book is that it's not just talking about the need for change and and how the digital roadmap and and transformation is going to impact all of our businesses, but John gives you the how-to. He he puts out a plan for you about how to implement a digital roadmap. So good reminder there for for all of you. Okay, transitioning back to today's episode, um, I'd like to welcome to you Dr. Carolyn Fisher. She is the principal of the Culture Solutions Group. They're a firm dedicated to helping boards, executive teams uh, achieve their results articulated in their mission and vision statements and business plans. Carolyn holds a master's in organizational development and a doctorate in organizational psychology. In this interview, Carol and I had time to explore and talk about how our understanding of culture has really changed over the last couple of decades, including how to measure high-performing cultures and organizations. She talks about her 25-year journey with uh, Dr. Dennison and how they work together in developing the Dennison Culture Survey, and that from that work, we have great roadmaps from other organizations that have been able to improve different dimensions of culture, and that that is a roadmap for all of us to follow so that we don't have to kind of start from scratch. So those nuggets and many more are included in this interview. I think you're going to really enjoy listening to Dr. Fisher. So if you're ready, sit back, put your feet up, and we'll move right into the interview with Dr. Carolyn Fisher. Hey, Carolyn, welcome to the show. Thanks for the invitation, John. It's good to be here. You know, I got so excited having you on the show because with my peers, we often talk a lot about culture and each of us has a little different opinion about it. And, uh, you know, with your expertise, I know you're going to help clear it up and help us find 
uh, a definition and, and learn more about culture and how it shapes our organizations. But maybe a good place to start for our listeners is maybe take two or three minutes or so and tell our listeners about your professional journey and about the mission of Culture Solution Group. Well, terrific. Um, culture is one of my favorite topics, as you know, John. Yeah. And so it, it could share a little bit about um, about what we do and, um, and the road that sort of got myself and um, the Culture Solutions team here in the first place. Um, I'll start with with the second part of your question, which is what does Culture Solutions Group do? Um, you know, our firm, uh, now about 17 years old, we exist to help organizations and the leaders within them achieve the results they say they want, plain and simple. Um, we do so by tapping into the, the highest leverage obstacles that today and perhaps always um, get in the way of those desired results, namely the culture of the enterprise, or could be the culture of their team, or their department, or their division, and the leadership qualities that are showing up with that group of people in that collective. Um, and of course, all leadership starts with self-leadership. So, as you know, John, um, culture and leadership are two sides of the very same coin. And so this integrated approach that Culture Solutions Group takes is really essential. We jump onto the path with an organization, um, and we work from the top of the organization clear out to the front lines with just a full range of services that we know today nudge the organization forward or help the organization take steps, whether it be in the collective being the culture or whether it be at the individual level being leadership qualities and skills. And some of our services are, services are, are quite a range of them from assessment to direction setting, coaching, facilitation, training, and more. And I think that um, what helps is we've been researching all the way along from the very beginning, and this goes back over 20 years, um, what is the, the quantitative link between culture and leadership and the bottom line, profitability, market share, sales, growth, quality of products and services, talent retention, customer sat and more. We've been doing the research all the way along so we understand if an organization desires a certain future or has stated some desired business results, then we can take them back into their culture and leadership and help them know where to adjust and um, sort of linking how we're doing what we're doing with the results that we're getting. So that's what we do. Mm. And uh, the first part of your question was, uh, really, what's, what's the road that has brought us here? For myself, personally, I just feel like I've been in training my whole life <laughs> to do this work today. Um, and I think that my, my intrigue and my interest in human dynamics and how people show up and they're either effective or somehow fall short of being effective, I think it, it started um, when I pretty avidly played team sports growing up, I was real, I played three sports a year in school from sort of middle school on, and I became really intrigued with why in some seasons is, does our, does our team have the top talent and experience?
experience, and we failed to win. And then in other seasons, our talent um, was perhaps minimal, but we were hugely successful. So that, I started scratching my head over that one um, years ago, and of course, I later learned that it's the culture and the leadership within the team that were the secret sauces that either helped our team live up to its potential um, or fail to do so. That just deepened my interest in how do people to come together and achieve what they say that they want. And um, so that was, I started formally studying culture about 25 years ago in in school, in business school, however, culture wasn't exactly part of the, the business lexicon, so a lot of our effort in those early days was spent just educating executives on what is it, and how does it work, and what could they do about theirs. Today, our job has actually become much easier in some ways, um, because culture is really on the radar screen for managers, and um, it seems that most organizations that are at least decent in, in, in moving forward and they're, they're at least somewhat effective, um, they know that they need to focus on culture. They may not know how to do that, but they know that this is, a, this is relevant to business. It is relevant. My peers and I talk about it often, and you, know, um, you and I have something in common that I played sports too. And Carolyn, I played on one team where it was basically the same 45 guys and one year we were undefeated, and the other year we couldn't win a game. And I, I always scratched my head, how could that be? You know, but uh, over 25 years, it sounds like you've seen some changes and have learned a lot about the understanding of business culture and how companies are impacting their cultures and their organizations. And maybe you can share that. I mean, what, what's a ball? What have we learned? Oh, boy. Um, John, as you and I have, have chatted about, I feel like I could write a book just on observations of sort of the evolution of our understanding of this concept of culture. You know, 25 years ago, again, it, it wasn't even that easy to get a graduate degree in the, in the um, arena of business culture um, because there weren't many graduate degrees offered out there then. Um, but, of course, today, they're pretty much a dime a dozen, and most business schools have an emphasis of some sort on, on culture. But back 25 years ago, we, we really um, pretty much assumed culture resides in a society or in a nation or in a particular part of the world or in cheese or yogurt. <laughs> it wasn't something that, that we necessarily... Uh, thought about in relation to business, but today, uh, how far we've come, we know that every time two or more people come together to get something done, a culture emerges. And the culture is characterized by really basic human behaviors and actions that either show up or don't show up. Mm -hmm. For instance, have we, in our group of two or more, have we defined the goal? Do we have a goal? Are we, do we know where we're going? Do we have a windshield view of some sort? Or, gosh, how do we make decisions? Do we combine the thinking and the doing? Or do we separate them? Do some people do the thinking and then other people do the doing? Um, how do we deal with mistakes and failure and conflict? Or, or do we deal with those things? 
how do we pivot when things aren't being successful? Or do we pivot when things aren't being successful? How do we hold ourselves accountable? And, and just a, a, a broad array of behaviors that, that, that show up when two people come together and decide that they're going to get something done. And um, again, kind of looking at the, how far we've come today, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the fact that if you pick up a publication of any sort or you log online and you're reading an article about a company or an organization or a sports team, there's going to be something about the culture of that group in that article, even if the word culture isn't used per se. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, if I watch a lot of financial news and uh, the financial news channel and that sort of thing. And even today, I smile to myself when um, the, the word just gets put right out there. Um, a group is, is being interviewed, and they'll talk about the culture of an organization. And, and somehow, I, I feel quite proud that we've come that far in our awareness in the business world. Um, you know, other really specific changes, John, I'll share with you. And this is, it's interesting to be on one path for, for over 20 years to, to watch this shift occur. Back 25 years ago when I was in grad school, um, culture was really defined as values, beliefs, even symbols and artifacts within an organization. I, I don't know about you, but I have kind of a hard time getting my head around all that. Today, we define culture simply as the way things get done around here, the behaviors, the actions, things that are visible that show up that either serve our purposes or get in the way of the purposes. Um, uh, gosh, back then, of course, because culture was so intangible and esoteric in our definition, we didn't think culture was measurable or quantifiably measurable. And today, we know that culture is measurable. If culture is the culmination of behaviors when we show up together as we're getting the work done, behavior is measurable. So now we know we can quantify it. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the next step on that is if, if behavior is measurable and it's quantifiable, then we can link it to quantifiable business results, namely profitability and market share and sales growth and all those things that we say we want to achieve. Um, gosh, uh, other I used to think, in fact, I learned this in grad school, that culture is created by the top of the organization and the top of the organization alone. And we can only be as good as the top of the organization. Now, John, as a CEO, how does that make you feel? Well, I'm beginning to understand that, you know, and I can look to our credit union and I can look to other organizations. I'll give you an example. The Golden State Warriors, when their coach Steve Kerr had to step down due to health reasons and the team continued to surge. There was the answer right there for you. There was something about that culture there. Uh, they decided to carry on without their coach. So I'm, I'm assuming that happens here at Partners, too, all the time. Absolutely. In fact, John, here's, here's news. You're outnumbered. <laughs> there are more of them as partners than there are of you. And today we, we, we boldly understand the culture is created and it's recreated by everyone that is part of that organization every day. And... What's fascinating about that is at night when nobody's working together, the culture goes away, and then we perhaps get in the car or we log on to go back to work, and we recreate the culture from the moment that we start interacting with people. And, and um, 
sometimes, ironically, we recreate the very culture that's not being effective for us or that we really don't even enjoy or like. Um, so culture is created by everybody. And, um, and back to also, you know, the change start has to start at the top or we can only be as good as the top team. Today, we know that it's helpful if, if change and culture change starts at the top, although it doesn't always start at the top. Sometimes it starts in the middle of an organization. But we also know that change can happen from the inside out in such a way where one manager decides that they are going to create an island of excellence within their domain. And then perhaps another manager in another domain says, what is going on over there and how are you reaching your numbers and why is everybody smiling and why are you stealing all my employees? And, and the, 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 the culture shift kind of happens horizontally in the organization. And, um, or as we say, from the inside out. And oftentimes an organization in today's world, because we're living in such a fast, self-empowered time, an organization actually becomes great in spite of the top team, which couldn't be more the opposite of what I learned as I was in my formal training back 25 years ago. So um, another shift is this, and I know, John, you're familiar with this, is that in order to move a culture forward and in order to engage everyone in taking ownership for the culture and moving forward, we need leaders at all levels not just at the top of the organization, which is, you know, really what we believed. And we referred to the people at the top of the organization as leaders 20 years ago. But today we know all, all will not manage, nor would all want to manage. All will not have a, a, a management role, but all must lead. All must lead. And, um, and, and in fact, everyone in the organization is leading in one way or another already, but are they seeing themselves as leaders and being able to, if they choose, have the positive impact that's in alignment with where the organization is striving to go. So uh, couldn't, couldn't, I could go on for, for an hour about the shift. And another one that's very important perhaps to the listeners, and, and they might be able to relate to this, is that um, in the old days, if an organization focused on culture, which department was in charge of focusing on culture? It would yeah. Be HR. <laughs> well, you and, know, um, yeah, you know, Carolyn, as you're talking, to me, this is so encouraging. And you're, you're helping us here, our partners, uh, understand, learn, and, and, and move in this direction, too. But how great it is that anyone can lead from anywhere. And if you can orchestrate and set the conditions and foster that environment, you know, here at Partners, we got 450 people and go to work on culture in a very intentional way. How cool is that? Well, in, in some regards, it's very freeing. If I am anywhere in the organization below the top, for me to know, wow, I can be part of the change that I want to see. And if it's to be, it's up to me. And maybe I can't impact the whole enterprise, but I, I am impacting my team day in and day out. The only question is, what kind of impact am I having? And could I choose to be the change I want to see? Yeah. It sounds like you're starting to, to lead into, you know, high-performing organizations. You know, what do they have in common? What are they doing? How are they orchestrating this new learning to, to get the business results that they seek? Maybe you could talk about that. What do high-performing organizations do? 
Well, you know, there's the, the, the thing about culture, and we get this question a lot from, from clients, is, you know, what does a good culture look like? If I want to be high-performing and culture is a part of that, what should my culture look like? Well, John, you and I both know when we scan organizations out there, there's there's a lot of high-performing organizations, and there's and, and they all have a culture, and across those organizations, the cultures can look very different. So it depends on where you're going and what you're striving to achieve as to then what cultural strengths you should have. But that said, as we research and work with organizations around the globe, um, you know, organizations that are very small, um, say perhaps under uh, 100 employees, to organizations that are quite, quite large, um, three to 400,000 employees. Um, and it, regardless of what stage they're at at their life cycle, from startup all the way through maturity and turnaround, we know that four characteristics exist, despite the fact that the cultures may look different to drive the performance they're, they're desiring. Four different aspects of culture must be present to be effective. One is, um, and the very first one, the very highest leverage aspect of culture that alone can help move a team or a division or an organization forward is simply clarity of direction. Do you know where you're going? Do you have a windshield view? Could be characterized by vision, by mission, by strategies, by goals that bring the strategies down to ground level for execution. It is amazing, John, to me how many organizations are attempting to move themselves forward, but they haven't defined forward. They haven't defined that point on the horizon they're trying to get to. So that's the first area of culture, hmm. just clarity of direction. The second area of culture, then, and we say it's the second highest leverage culture trait, is alignment and engagement of the team clear out to the front line. So it's one thing to have stated a direction, but it doesn't mean anything if people are not owning it, if they don't have line of sight from where they are in the organization to that windshield view, right? It's not just about having a direction that is printed on maybe nice placards and hanging on the wall and that sort of thing. Do I, wherever I'm in the organization, do I do I see myself in that? Do I see how my dots connect to those dots? So the secondary culture is alignment and engagement to the front lines. Then the third area of culture is really ability to adapt, especially, of course, today as things are changing at light speed. Are we able to adapt, to flex, to the things that are changing outside of our world, in the marketplace, with our customers. And, and of course, we, we clarify not simply react, but respond to those changes in, those, in the marketplace, in those opportunities um, that are in alignment with where we said we want to go because the opportunity to change is all over everywhere. I mean, if we could spend every minute changing, but do we know what to change? And then do people go forward? And then the fourth area of culture really is, do we know what should not change? Are we able to stay consistent in the areas where we need to be consistent such that there's continuity and efficiency throughout the organization? Okay. And, of course, some of the things that help us stay consistent are 
systems, processes, technologies. Um, but of course, the systems and processes alone aren't going to move us forward. That's where, as you move from clarity direction to alignment engagement, to adaptability and to consistency, consistency is actually your lowest leverage culture trait. Because if you just did that, it wouldn't create, it wouldn't move you forward, but you got to have consistency, the right doses of it, the right amount of it. So those are those buckets that um, I just mentioned. Those four buckets are really whether it's a startup or a mature company, or perhaps a company that's turning around, or a large company, small company, private sector, public sector. Those four characteristics consistently now in, in thousands of organizations we've researched, um, they are present, and that is what drives a group of people toward achieving what they say they want to achieve. Wow. You know, Carolyn, I, I think I just figured out why our team went from not winning a game to almost being undefeated. Uh, we decided we wanted to be league champions. Uh, we decided that we would break the team into four teams and that each would have a leader and that they would work on getting their part of the mission stronger. And like the linemen all went off and worked together and the wide receivers and the quarterbacks walk, walk, went together and did weightlifting and training. And this was all driven by the players, not the coaches, uh, because we had had it. We did not want to you know, have another season of not experiencing success. And so with the goal and with alignment and, uh, and uh, consistency, we agreed that we would work out year round, not just during the football season. And uh, everything changed in one year's time based on people just driving wow. the culture. You helped me kind of identify what happened there. That's cool. Well, that's great, John. We just did a little culture diagnosis. I like it. On your teams. <laughs> yes. Because it's really, you know, we, we get called frequently from, um, from organizations, from a CEO, from, from a manager of a, of a division, doesn't matter, someone – they always call us, almost 100% of the time, they call us about what we would call the symptom. We're not winning. We're losing our customers. We're, you know, we're losing our employees. We can't hang on to employees. Quality's going to take whatever it is. And what we always say is that's actually not your problem. John, for your team way back when, not winning was not the problem. It was why you weren't winning yeah. that was the problem. Yeah. So can we measure high-performing cultures and organizations, and are they correlated? Yes. Um, again, um, we, we can measure high-performing cultures. In fact, we can measure a, a culture on the full spectrum from very low-performing or non-performing <laughs> all the way to high-performing, and they are correlated. Um Again, as our as our understanding of culture shifted from its its esoteric, it's in the realm of beliefs and assumptions to its behavioral. And interesting enough, it was Dan Dennison, who was at the University of Michigan at that time, that really pressed against that that then current paradigm that culture is beliefs and assumptions. And it was Dan that led the church saying, yeah, beliefs and assumptions are important, but that beliefs and assumptions drive behavior. Our mindsets drive behavior, and behavior is measurable. And so 
um, and quantifiable. So that allowed us to begin then measuring culture, and Dan led the charge with developing tools that would allow that measurement to take place and then allow the, the distinctive connection with those things that we measure in an organization, whether it be on a balanced scorecard or a dashboard or those sorts of things. So now our understanding in this enormous database that we have is if you say, gosh, we want to increase safety. You know, people are getting hurt around here and, um, and we really need to, to amplify our safety. We know exactly where to focus in your culture to accelerate the achievement of safety or customer satisfaction or customer retention. We know exactly where in your culture to shine the, the laser beam in order to move that forward, which has then allowed us to, um, to help organizations shift their culture more quickly because back in sort of the, the Jack Welch days, maybe, you know, 20 years ago when he was doing the giant culture experiment um, in his role at General Electric, um, his, you know, his belief is it takes takes eleven years to change the culture of an organization. Well, it doesn't doesn't have to take eleven years if you're focusing on the very high highest leverage parts of your culture to drive where you're trying to go. Yeah, well, what what a gift for you to work so closely with uh, Daniel Dennison on the Dennison Culture Survey. For our listeners who might not be familiar with that assessment tool or survey, tell us a little bit about it. Well, a um, little bit about Dan, um, I think he, he would say the same thing as myself that he's been in training his whole life for <laughs> doing culture work in today's world where the need has, has, become, um, has become clear. Dan and I met um, when I was in grad school, uh, 20, 20, around 23 years ago, we met over a cup of coffee in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And he was researching the link between culture and business performance, and I was doing the same in Southern California, working on my doctorate. And you know, there was it was a pretty lonely world out there in that arena. There weren't a lot of people that were were asking questions about culture and bottom line business performance. So that's when we we started working together, and we've been great friends and colleagues ever since. Um, the Denison tools, what what they allow you to do is um, as, is is easily assess those four areas of culture that I described a few minutes ago, um, and such that you can quickly see sort of what's working for us in terms of our desired business results and and what's getting in the way. So this this entire couple of decades, over a couple of decades, it's been developing these tools and the, the database and research that is enhancing our understanding of these linkages. Now what's really fascinating to me is now culture is very popular in the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So culture tools are kind of a dime a dozen. In fact, some some tools that call themselves culture tools or our models today, um, they actually, maybe they were more climate tools 10 years ago or yeah. more employee satisfaction tools. But now that culture is kind of the language that everybody wants, um, they've kind of morphed their branding into that. Um, I would say today, 
Janice and model and tools really, and I use a lot of tools in my work, um, but when it, when it comes to measuring culture, I believe that the Denison tools are the most comprehensive measure of culture. They don't just measure one aspect of culture, but they measure sort of the holistic nature of culture. And really, none of the, the, the research out there quite links culture with the bottom line business results that... Um, that the Denison does, and and we we describe these tools today as really doing three things. They're they're descriptive, they're predictive, and they're prescriptive. So so what do I mean by that? Descriptive in that they they describe what your culture currently is quantitatively. So where are we stronger? Where are we weaker? What are where are the patterns and the things in our culture? So they're descriptive. They, they show what is today. And your culture is always changing. There's always pressure on your culture. So if they describe what your culture is today, then they're predictive in that if nothing changed in our culture, what could we predict in terms of business results going forward? And then fortunately now, because of thousands of organizations that have used the tools, they're also prescriptive in that as we're researching these companies, we're always interested in what's working if if you know what your culture is and you want to make change and you were successful at making change, what did you do that that moved the culture forward? So they're prescriptive in that um, if you feel, wow, we really need to strengthen our, our coordination integration across the organization, working in our horizontals across the organization, across those silos, what have other organizations done? Well, we can look to those organizations that have been successful and draw from their best practices. Yeah. So, as, as you're talking, Carolyn, I'm just um, continuing to learn here. So this idea for culture for me 20 years ago, it was kind of mystical. It was kind of like we couldn't get our arms around it. We knew it was powerful. We knew it was important. But it was more of an art, but there was no science to it. And here you're talking about it's evolved to a science to – um, you know, be descriptive, predictive, and 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 um, so helpful to us. You know, we're learning here at Partners. It actually just lays down a blueprint for you, saying it's here that you need to go to work. You know, um, and that that work is is a body of work that others have undertaken, and you can understand it and and take advantage of it and leverage it. I mean, it's how far we've come in twenty years. Oh yes, indeed, and I think it it is it's it's serving again. It's it's serving. Um, the, the, the effectiveness of organizations, certainly, this, this understanding of culture, but it's, I believe it's also serving the quality of life for those people who are in the workforce. It really is, it, focusing on culture, um, allows you to create a work environment where people come to work and they're able to bring the best parts of themselves to work instead of leaving the best parts of themselves locked in the car. They're, they're able to contribute. They're expected to contribute and to think and to learn and to grow. And, um, you know, a lot of what applies to being a leader within an effective culture, it also applies to home, to parenting, to being involved in your community. So, um, I, you know, I, in, in some ways I see organizations getting stronger as just sort of the venue that ultimately makes our society stronger as well. well I agree. And, and so we're learning that 
um, good business practice is just the right thing to do. You get rewarded for doing the right thing, which is, you know, finding the full potential of all your people. And uh, when, when they're engaged at work at their full potential, wow, you know, and, and you know, the research is out there that talks about what's the difference of what a workforce that's highly engaged versus one that's not engaged. It's just, it's tremendous what the difference is. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Caroline, can I take us back a minute? Um, you mentioned a, a climate survey versus a culture survey, and our listeners might not know the difference. So in your mind, what's yeah. the difference between those two? Well, climate and and culture, both relevant in organizations. Um, focusing on climate was far more popular, oh gosh, um, 15, 20, 25 30 years ago, um, I guess that was when you first started seeing these climate assessments um, and the importance of climate come come onto the radar screen. Climate is, when you're measuring climate, you're really measuring sort of the, the individual's experience of the organization, the individual's experience of the team. Is it working for them? Do they feel happy? Do they feel satisfied? Do they feel engaged? It's, it's the individual's relationship with the organization. And um, sort of, and, and that's important. However, the culture, on the other hand, is it's the collective. It's really how are we as individuals coming together to create an environment where one plus one equals three. It's what is all this adding up to? Whether it's the individuals within a team that are creating a certain kind of culture that either either helps or gets in the way, or it could be larger. It could be across an organization. And in today's world, of course, most of our business opportunities require alignment across those verticals. So for measuring the culture is, are we coming together in a way where one plus one is equaling three across the verticals or across the silos? And so climate is focused on individual. And culture is really focused on the collective, what's it adding up to. That's really helpful. Let's see. So a lot of our listeners to the show, Carolyn, are uh, merging leaders and always looking for, you know, uh, a way to, to move ahead and impact their careers and, and have a bigger impact on the teams that they lead. What advice would you have for them? Well, I, I would say if um, I, w- I would say, John, you, you know, you know how I see things. We're all emerging leaders, whether or not we aspire at some point to be a manager or have a manager role, um, where if leadership is defined as um, simply having an impact, we're, we're all having an impact. The only question is, what kind of impact are we having? So true. Um, if an individual is in a management role or aspiring to hold a management role, I would say begin your learning about how culture works immediately. Culture is the highest leverage aspect of leadership that that anyone in a management role could understand. And and when I say how culture works, it's um, what is culture, what impacts culture, what is culture impact, and then how do you get in the the driver's seat to begin to be intentional with your culture because your your culture is it just is it's 
and, and you put those two people together, they start doing stuff together, and a culture starts emerging. But the only question is, is is that culture emerging by design, or is it emerging by default? Because mm-hmm. it's doing one of those two things. So even if you've been in a management role for a long time and you feel like, ah, oh, it's too late, um, it's never too late. Become conscious about culture, learn about it, and, and importantly, learn, take it personally. If you're in a management role, the very first question to ask is, if our culture's if our culture's not working, or if there are pain points, or if we're not achieving the results we want through our culture, is ask, what is my role in this? Mm. How am I showing up as a leader such that I'm impacting the culture, whether people are communicating or not, or whether people are engaged or not, or whether we're clear on what the goal is or not, or take it personally, and then begin learning how, how how's the culture working in such a way where then we can come together as leaders together on our team mm-hmm. to take this culture to a new place because cultures get taken to a new place every day of the week. They are getting taken to a new place and in part because that new place is based on all the disruption that seems to be ever increasing out there. And if I talk to any leader, it's about, it's almost breathtaking how fast things are changing in front of us and that disruption. So in that involving environment, what do you think we need to be thinking about as leaders or how do we prepare ourselves to be in that kind of unprecedented change or what feels like unprecedented change? You know, that kind of kind of links with the question is, you know, is, is was culture something that we, we really didn't ever need to focus on or, or wasn't, wasn't a reality up until this point in time where there's all this disruptive change? We would say that culture's always been relevant. It's just that there wasn't the urgency to look at ourselves and look at how we're working in a time that perhaps was slower, um, in a time where um, we perhaps one person could hold it all in their head in an organization or at the top of the division. Um, we didn't need to change as quickly. So people ask all the time, why did it take so long for culture to appear on the business radar screen? Well, it's always been relevant and it's always been impacting your performance. But boy, in a, in a slower time, say the manufacturing-based economy, of which we were a part years ago, um, it, it, it was possible to be successful with separation of the thinking and the doing and working in silos and even internal competition across those silos. It was, it was possible to be successful. But today, as you know, our economy today is described in many different ways. Some call it a a service innovation economy, some call it a service technology economy, Um, I call it service slash innovation slash technology driven economy, Um, we we simply can't go forward by separating the thinking Mm. and the doing at all levels. Mm. Um, We need ownership at all levels. We need alignment not just within the verticals, but horizontally across those verticals. If we're hoping that our that our, our strategies and our, our business results are going to manifest, and, and importantly too, you know, customers are smart. 
they're they're very smart. Um, I like to think of myself as a customer as being pretty smart. And if a company is is too slow or unresponsive or produces quality products, I'd like to think that I will walk. I will take my business elsewhere. In this self-empowered time that we're in, customers walk all the time. It's a huge driving factor. This this choice that we all have is actually prompting companies to to take culture seriously be, because culture is what drives then what the customer experiences. And, and also, you know, John, employees are pretty darn smart too. And uh, because there's we're living in such a time filled with choices and options out there is that good employees, the quality employees, they will leave a culture that's unhealthy or one that is not allowing them to grow or tap into what they can contribute. So in some ways, I think the customers and especially the younger employees, they're making our company better because they there's a price to pay um, if your culture isn't producing something that's effective either internally for the employees or externally for the customers. You know, I, I think about that too. The amount of choice is just amazing. And the ease of which you can pick up your business and go somewhere else, it's uh, its portable. You know, there's no stickiness in, in so many of the business relationships or customer, you know, service relationships. It's, hey, I can vote with my feet right now and go somewhere else. You know, Carolyn, as I'm listening to you talk, you're citing all kinds of research. And, and so you must be constantly sharpening your saw and learning and evolving as a leader yourself. Uh, how do you do that? I certainly, I have um, probably far more edu- formal education than is rational <laughs> in today's world. <laughs> I've never heard it expressed that way. I like it. <laughs> I've done the traditional path, um, certainly in collecting some degrees along the way and being involved in research institutions and pouring through reams of data and that sort of thing. But but I'll tell you, John, in this in this arena of culture, the, the place where I've learned by far the most about how culture really works is running my own companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this whole notion of culture is far from theoretical for me. Um, it's really been when I'm in the trenches and I'm I am, and my companies are trying to respond to a changing world and changing needs of the clients, and we need alignment and we need clarity of direction it's that doing it is where i probably learned the most although i've relied on a lot of books and and research along the way um as well and another area that comes to mind that is really just as important as the first area i mentioned is we learn so much from our clients you know the way we work is we we, we get onto the path with them. This isn't about us standing up pontificating about anything. We really push up our sleeves and get in the trenches with them. And we learn as they learn. And in that partnership, um, we, we aren't there giving them the answers, but we sure help facilitate their discovery of the answers that are right for them. And, of course, we, we add to that with what we've seen work you know, in different organizations. Um, but I would say that's the, really the second area of my saw sharpening yeah. that I do is, is continually learning in the trenches with our clients. And then also, oh, wow, John, I know you're a big believer in coaching and you've had a coach for years and years. I have a coach. 
I would recommend anyone out there in the world, especially if you're in a managing leader role, have a coach. Um, I've had one continuously for the last 19 years, and I wouldn't dream of being without one. It's just, it's things are going so fast, and and especially the business world is pretty complex and confusing, and just taking that time out to stop and to invest in yourself in that way. Um, I would say to any to any leader, any managing leader out there, you're worth it. Make that investment in yourself. Don't try to do it alone. It's a team sport. It's not an individual sport. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I, I you know, as you said, I've been using a coach now for gosh, almost 15 years, and. I need that time off the field, right? And to talk with my coach about what just happened and, you know, over the last 30 days. And as I look to the next 30 days, what I'm trying to do with intention. And before I go, weigh in, you know, give me some advice. How you know me, you know our team. Um, you know, how can I execute even better before I go take the field? So, um, yeah, I, I think uh, coaching is, is, is essential for me. So let's see. A um, lot of ways to learn. One of the ways I learned is I just talked about it. I come off the field and I go, wow, that was awesome. I want to know how I did that and do it again. Or you know what? That didn't feel so good. You know, some setbacks. I don't know. I think I may learn more from my setbacks than anything, it seems like. But um, how about for you? Do you have any setbacks that have informed, you know, how you make your way forward? Maybe you could tell us about that. Oh, gosh. You know, I, I think for any of us that have been lucky enough to live into our 50s, um, there, there have been quite a, quite a few roadblocks and challenges, um, just just hanging in there and staying out there in the world. Um, you know, interesting, I'm, I when, when you had asked me recently about setbacks that I've experienced, uh, maybe call it naive, I, I guess even when I was in some tough situations I, where some things really didn't work out the way that I thought that they would, I, I guess I never held it as a setback, um, and I'm not sure why that is, um, and I, you got me thinking about that, John, recently. Um, <laughs> I would say absolutely. However, I held it. There were some daunting and, and scary and confusing times um, along the way, like anyone um, related to my health and business and family and that sort of thing. Um, but I would say related to my professional path, probably the, the most important horrific challenge that I experienced was actually in my first job right out of college, mm. where fresh-faced and ready to go up there and make a difference in the world and have an impact. And I landed in an organization where they were going to have nothing to do with that. <laughs> nothing to do with <laughs> making a change in the world. Um, I stepped into a very toxic and, and what I would say sick work culture. And um, that was characterized by some very negative leadership and um, and everything that goes along with that. And I actually had firsthand opportunity to observe what it did to me in my thinking about myself, in my, uh, my willingness to put myself out there, in my emotional state. I saw what it did in terms of our team performance. And of course, again, I, I was just beginning to learn about this notion of culture. I didn't really realize this is it. This, this is exactly what we need to eradicate in the world, this type of work environment, because it's bad for everybody. It's not only bad for the business results, it's bad 
for the people within the organization. It's bad for the the people who go home and spend time with their families and that sort of thing. So I think that those three years that I was in that first job, and, you know, John, if I, if I ever see my first boss, that boss again, I'm going to going to walk up to him, I'm going to give him a big old hug, and I'm going to thank him. <laughs> thank you so much. If it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have had the career that I have. Yeah. Truly. Well, you know, I experienced a culture like that, too, more than once. And, um, God, you know, Carolyn, what it's left me feeling like is I can just take myself back to that moment where you feel discounted or disheartened or you watch a leader, how they um, actually hurt people is what I would say, right, by the way they interact with them. And if I ever catch myself and I'm not perfect, sometimes I can see in somebody's eyes that I'm not connecting. And um, when that happens to me, that there is – Almost nothing I won't do to try to correct that because I just will not accept that I am not having a positive impact or I'm not trying to partner with you on the things that matter to you. And um, so those, I agree that that, that, that negative experience has left a, an indelible uh, learning on me that, you know what, work hard to make a difference yeah. at that personal level. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and I think, too, getting in touch with the fact, especially if we're a managing leader, but I would go so far as to say, you know, all of us, we are creating a legacy for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And um, the only question is, what kind of legacy are we creating? Mm -hmm. Because um, for, for either very, very positive or very, very negative, the people that we interact with, they will be talking about us. Yeah, yeah. 10, 20, 30 years down the road. And the only question is, what will they be saying? And I think when we hold it in that way, um, that, wow, yeah, you know, what, what, what will people be saying about me? What do I want them to be saying about me? What story do I want them to be telling about me 20 and 30 years down the road? Um, do I, do I want someone to be talking about me in a podcast saying that I was the world's most horrible manager that ever walked the planet Earth, you know? <laughs> Not going <laughs> to happen. <laughs> Not going to happen. Oh, hey, I'd like to stay with this theme of learning a little bit. And I'm always curious when I walk into a, a leader's office and I just want to see what's what's on their bookshelf or what's on their tablet or, or their, their, you know, whatever that they're using for learning. So... Uh, what would I find on, on your uh, e-reader or on your desk now? What are you reading? Oh, my gosh. You're speaking my language. One of my favorite times of the day is at the very end when I get to curl up in a chair and then pick up my tablet and just um, get lost in some, some thoughts. Um, you know, of course, for, for decades I've been avid about reading business books. Um, but when you, when you had asked me this question a couple of weeks ago, so, you know, what's on, what's on your tablet? I thought, I don't know what's on my tablet. And I, I opened it up and, um, surprisingly today, even though, um, I have a deep curiosity about business success, I'm surprised to see there's not a single traditional business book or the, you know, the top 10 of the business books that are on my tablet. Um, certainly I've got. Harvard Business Review, I've got Fast Company and Fortune and a variety of those periodicals. But what I what I observed in flipping through what's on my tablet is, and, and what I think I'm doing is learning other aspects of sort of um, 
life and society that relate back to the culture of organizations and relate back to business success, but in sort of an indirect way. Um, I, I find I'm far more interested in history, sociology, art, spirituality, mm. sports, even music. And I, I, I think that part of the reason for that is, you know, culture is the most comprehensive measure within an organization. Mm. And it encompasses every everything related to human dynamics and creativity, inspiration, and human resilience, and uh, the list goes on. And I think I'm drawing um, some deeper level insights, um, not directly from business books, but from books that are sort of more integrated and, and multidisciplinary at this point in time. And I, I find that in my programs with clients, I'm actually using those things in in some ways that perhaps you wouldn't have seen me using 15 years ago. You know, Carolyn, you talk about interdisciplinary. That's kind of the reading I'm doing, too. Um, I'm reading a book about Leonardo da Vinci. There's a guy who integrated science and art, right? And Benjamin Franklin is another person I'm interested in, in reading more about because I think these people were fascinating. The Renaissance people who did just the breadth of what they could do was amazing. And I'm, I'm reading that because I think that's really interesting um, lives that were that well lived and, and wanting to learn from them. Fabulous. Uh, John, maybe we need to have a non-business book book group. That would be great. Yeah, I'll, I'll show up. Sounds good to me. I'm in. Yeah. A book group, and the only thing you're not allowed to suggest that we read is a is a strictly business book. Bring in something else that relates and can be applied, um, but not a business book. Yeah, well, that, that's a great way to energize yourself. I think is what we're talking about. So you come back to your clients and family and society a, a better person. So. So that takes energy to do all these wonderful things that we're talking about. You know, what are your what are your hobbies and what do you like to do, Carolyn? You know, um, John, I I we I live and our business is based in Colorado, in the Mile High State, where in Colorado it's all things outdoors. Um, I went to I was born and raised in California, but. Um, went to Colorado on a long weekend 30 years ago, and I never left. I love that. Um, and uh, we have a theme in my, and both people that have my line of work, live where you play and travel for work. So we do. And uh, so I'm out with clients around the globe during the week, and then I come home, and it's it's all things outdoors, both individual and, and team-related. Team um, gosh, skiing and biking and hiking and golf and tennis and cycling and um, just about anything that, that it doesn't involve being inside is, is really what my passion is. Well, that, so that's, that's what I do to re-energize. Well, it works because it comes through, Carolyn, and your passion talking about work and your studies and your learning and how you want to impact others and society and um, hey, whatever you're doing, it's working. Keep it going. Hey, I wanted to ask you too, for, and for our listeners, they would want to know that you're authoring a book that's coming out soon. Tell us a little bit about the book and and um, when might we read it and and tell us about it, please. Well, um, of course, I've I've been working on a number of different books through the years, collecting content and sort of laying the books out and. Um, 
um, unfortunately, as culture becomes more popular in the world, I'm having less and less time to actually write. We're attending to culture needs within our clients, but but one um, one book that um, we are we're working on and is we're in the home stretch with um, it. Uh, it's interesting enough. It's a book about failure within organizations, mm. um, and you know, as much as as I and all of us love um, success stories and being inspired by them and studying what created that success, I I've I've become incredibly intrigued and sort of gripped by stories of failure, whether it's at the individual, the group, or the organizational level, and and I guess. Um, a big piece of that is knowing that any of us individually or together can fall into um, the, the trance that puts us on the path, but then we make mistakes and sometimes even fail. And um, and I'm really interested about the different stages of that, like at what point did we get on that path of believing something that was going to lead us to ultimate failure that led to the bad choices that we might have made um, had us falling into a, a cultural trance, so to speak. So this, the name of this book is The Death of a Company, 25 Ways to Kill a Company and How to Avoid Killing Yours. I like it. You know what? You know what I have? I have this vision in my head of a flashing yellow light. You're going to put that out there, 25 of them for us, that if you're approaching this, start to slow down and use some caution. I love that. Yes, yeah. Well, there's so much we can learn from one another. There's so much organizations can learn from or other organizations, whether they are a best practice that an organization has out there or something that's very far from being a best practice. You know, if any of us look at some of the corporate disasters or corporate failings that have happened out there and for a second we think, oh, that would never happen to me, um, that's that's the moment at which we're actually getting on the path to to, to difficulty right there, and um, you know, and at the end of the day, it's what what I'm intrigued by is you know a lot of these organizations that end up making bad choices. These these are very good people that ultimately make bad choices or do bad things. So so what happens there? And of course, through my lens of culture, I see that it's it's always the culture in one way or another played a really strong role in the collective making bad decisions. So we've got a lot of companies, not named, but looking at the company scenarios in terms of, of what happened, whether it's in the automotive industry or the pharmaceutical industry or... Um, the airline industry, or even much smaller organizations as well. So hopefully, it will be um, not a not a dark and morbid book, but one that um, we can kind of look at ourselves and and reflect, and then also maybe apply some humor to this human journey that we're on. <laughs> that would be good. That sounds really good. Hey, will you come back and tell us about your book when it's ready to be published, and and uh, help us get a fast start to understanding and reading the learning? Absolutely. I'd love to, John. That'd be Thanks great. for the invitation. Yeah. I will let you know. You bet. Hey, I, well, I've really enjoyed our time together, Carolyn. Thank you. On behalf of our listeners, you're sharing your expertise with us is 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 generous. It's fantastic. It's motivating. I'm, I'm, I'm leaving the call just really, really energized. So thank you. And to all of our listeners, uh, we'll see you next month with another episode of C-Suite Interviews. So until next time, bye for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Big Cast C-Suite with John Janclays. 
To learn more or connect with John and the CEO Corner, please visit theceocorner.com. And we always welcome you to join in on our conversation. You can connect with the BigCast Network directly by tweeting us at BigFintech, emailing us at info at big-fintech.com, or visiting our website at bigfintechmedia.com.